can turn with me this morning to the book of Galatians again. We are nearing the end of chapter 3, so we're continuing in our series there. Let me just pray for us as we start. Lord, we come before you this morning, gathered corporately as your people, as elect exiles. Lord, we need to hear from you. And we gather knowing that your word speaks, that your spirit speaks through the inspiration of every word that is in Scripture. And so, God, we come expectantly this morning. We come expectantly saying, Speak to us, encourage us, build us up, convict us. Raise our eyes from the mundane things of life, from the distractions of every day. Help us to look and see you. So God, we come knowing that you will. Knowing that you promise us that in your words there is life. And that in your words the life that we receive is Jesus. So God, glorify Christ in our midst this morning in the reading in the preaching, in the absorbing of your word. Let us be changed by your holy, perfect, inspired word. For the glory of your Son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, we're continuing in chapter 3, so we're going to be reading a pretty good chunk of Scripture this morning, starting in verse 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, it should be on the screen as well, so you can follow along there. But beginning in Galatians chapter 3 verse 15. This is what the Word of God says. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been, had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, it's a lot of text, and there's a lot of stuff there. And we're sitting in the middle of Galatians 3, and it's been a pretty packed thick chapter if you've been with us the last several weeks. Now, up to this point in Galatians, Paul's said some pretty shocking things, things that are pretty surprising to this audience that he's writing to. 
the preciousness of Abraham and the law, those are unimpeachable things in the minds of, of anyone who is at all familiar with the Old Testament, right? Well, in the opening verses of chapter 3, Paul seems to pit them against each other. Abraham on one side, the law on the other. What does that mean? He, he says circumcision is not the key to Abraham's blessing. And that was what everyone took from the Old Testament. You, you get circumcised. That was the, the sign of the covenant given to Abraham. So you had to have circumcision to be part of Abraham. And Paul says, no. That, that sign of the covenant does not make you part of Abraham. Well, what's going on? In verse 10, he shakes it up even more. He argues that anyone who even relies on works of the law is cursed. You're condemned. The law required perfection. If you want to be justified by the law, then you must be perfect every second of every day of your life, not just in your actions, but in your thoughts, in your intentions, in your nature. It's unattainable. So Paul says the law can only condemn. But that raises further questions. Didn't God give the law? Didn't God make a covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai? I mean, what's Paul saying here? Is he, is he implying that Moses got it wrong? Is that covenant, are those Ten Commandments not something God's given to us? Can you really just wipe away this huge section of the Old Testament in one bold stroke, Paul? Because it fits your theology better? Those are some of the questions that his opponents in Galatia are no doubt asking and pushing forward. Those answers come in today's text. The first thing Paul wants us to see in response to those sort of questions is this. The promise is preeminent, not the law. Here's what I mean. Paul takes an illustration from ordinary life, from, from normal human interactions, and shows us that this is how we should read our Bibles. In verse 15, he says, to give a human example, in other words, just the normal things of life, even with a man-made covenant, so not a covenant between man and God, just a covenant between two dudes, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. Now, Paul's saying when you make a covenant, you can't go back later and change the terms. And that can be kind of weird for us because we kind of think in terms of the Constitution, right? And the Constitution has these things built into it, that there can be amendments that adjust it and tweak it and, and clarify it. Well, the covenants that God makes are not like the Constitution. And there's a really easy reason for that. Really explainable. We have to have a document like the Constitution with the ability for it to be amended because we're not perfect, right? We don't see things perfectly. In fact, when the Constitution first gets drafted, African Americans only count as three-fifths of a person. So thank the Lord that there's an amendability to the Constitution. God's covenants don't work that way. God's covenants are never tweaked. The Constitution's not a covenant. It's just a document. This is a, something t entirely different. But we have some sense of that. You, you enter into the covenant of marriage. There's vows you make that have a sticking power to them, right? 
we have a sense of those covenants, even when they're not between God and man. And so in the biblical worldview, those stakes are even steeper. Now, to get this, we need to have an understanding of the background of covenants, biblical covenants. There, there was a class I took in undergrad called Covenant Promise and Fulfillment. And it was a course completely devoted just to this topic of what were covenants? How do we understand them rightly? Well, when God cuts a covenant with Abraham in Genesis, and we say he cuts a covenant because when he seals it, when it says here in Galatians that God ratified it, remember, he kills an animal. And he spreads the entrails of the animal into two halves, and God passes through the animal. So we say God cuts a covenant with Abraham. What he's doing is he's sealing that covenant in blood. When he seals it in blood, he's saying this pact, this agreement, this deal is eternal. It's unconditional. What has now been established can never be tweaked, can never be changed, can never be amended. To break the covenant was unthinkable. And the reason why is because when God passes through the remains of that animal, what Abraham sees in Genesis, God is in essence saying, my character is on the line in this covenant. I seal it. Now what's interesting is, normally in the covenant, in the biblical ancient Near East, you'd do something like that and you'd kill the animal and both parties would pass through. Symbolizing, hey, both of us put this covenant on our head. There's blessings and curses involved and we're both saying, if this thing gets broken, whoever breaks it is in trouble. It's not the covenant with Abraham. Only God passes through. Implicit in what was being stated was God saying, my character, my name, my integrity is what's on the line with this covenant. In perpetuity. It's not going to end. Now, the problem Paul points out is people were reading their Bibles incorrectly. They viewed the covenants sort of in this this flat, two-dimensional manner. So, yeah, God made a covenant with Abraham, and then he makes a covenant with Moses. And and because of the way they they viewed the covenants in kind of this flat way, without seeing the texture and the three-dimensional aspects of the covenant, they were mistakenly thinking that the Mosaic covenant was just simply an extension and a clarification of the covenant with Abraham. When God makes the covenant with Moses, it's really still the same covenant. He's just now adding things and clarifying things and bringing things into more perfect perspective. Just 430 years later, right? Well, this flattening out of the covenants fails to account for the distinct discontinuities that exist between what God did with Abraham and what he did with Moses. Paul points out the law comes later. And because it came later, it can't nullify a covenant that was made prior, which is just to say there are distinctions between these two covenants. There's a promissory nature to the covenant that's given to Abraham. There's a promise involved that we don't see in the same way in the Mosaic covenant. Now, what we're seeing, and I want us to grasp this, we're seeing a way to read our Bible. Paul's giving us a lesson here. You have to read your Bible temporally and historically. You can't, you can't just 
rip the Bible out of its context and still think you're going to make sense of it. We don't want to wipe away the continuity that exists. Both Abraham's covenant and Moses' covenant, they're established by grace. We don't want to set up this dichotomy that Abraham is grace and Moses is works. There's grace driving both of these covenants. God's making a covenant with broken, sinful people. That's got grace written all over it. However, there are distinct economies. There are diverse natures between the covenant of promise and the covenant of law. I'll never forget the revelation I had in college when I heard for the first time about this man named J.R.R. Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings. Somebody was describing, they're going to make the Lord of the Rings into a movie. And I'd never heard of it. What's that? Oh, and they started describing it. I'm like, oh, it's like the Chronicles of Narnia. And it was like I just blasphemed. Oh, no. Lord of the Rings is something of an entirely different nature. And so I was excited. You know, I, I went and I read the book, and I just immediately fell in love with this world Tolkien had created. Well, I remember when they released the first movie. And you want to talk about common grace? There's common grace in God's gift to us and Peter Jackson and the way he made those movies. <laughs> so I go to the first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, and I go with my buddy Mike. And I'm just so excited, and I'm so hopeful. Please don't, don't destroy the story. Make it live up to everything it's supposed to. And hopefully you're familiar. Here's Frodo, the Hobbit, Samwise Gamgee, and they come together and form this fellowship of elves and dwarves and humans. And they're going to set on this epic mission, this epic journey to destroy the ring, to conquer evil in Middle-earth. And at the end of the first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, remember how it ends? It's just, a, it's just this terrible, the orcs come, there's just slaughter. You've got Merry and Pippin, two of the other hobbits, which is just short little dudes with hairy feet. They get carried off by a bunch of the orcs. And Frodo and Sam go across the river, and they've decided they're going to go out on their own. And the whole fellowship has just broken apart. So seemingly the whole premise for this movie is that these guys come together and make a pact. We're going to do this. The nine of us, the fellowship of the ring. And at the end of the book, the fellowship breaks apart. But man, did it set the stage for the next two movies. It was incredible. Well, we get done, and I walk out of the theater. I turn to my buddy Mike. What'd you think? And he looks at me, and he says, that was the dumbest movie ever. <laughs> I, was, I was just crushed. What? How can you say such a thing? How, how dare you? And he, he looks at me, and he says, that's the worst ending to a movie I've ever seen. And we start to dialogue, and I realize... Mike is completely oblivious to the fact that there's two more movies coming. He thinks that's the end of the story, in which case he's totally right. Worst ending to a story ever. Well, that's kind of indicative of what's happening here in Galatia. The Fellowship of the Ring was totally misinterpreted by Mike because he failed to consider that it's part of a larger storyline. There's a canon to the Lord of the Rings. And the Fellowship of the Ring is only one-third of that canon. And he didn't know that. And so he's sitting there looking at it thinking, huh? He was missing the bigger narrative. Well, 
when we flatten out the distinctions between the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants, we should be left with this same sort of dissatisfaction that Mike had at the end of that first movie. That's it? That's all there is? Paul's point is exactly that. No. The law isn't it. The law is subordinate to the promises that were previously made to Abraham. The law required an intermediary. Abraham gets his covenant directly with God. The law that Moses receives comes through angels. And then Moses himself serves as an intermediary. And then there's priests that serve as an intermediary. Whereas with Abraham, it's direct access to God. Now, here's why that matters. If there's no discontinuity, if the law interprets the promise, then the inheritance of Abraham is gained by law-keeping. And the story ends with as much a thud as Mike thought the Fellowship of the Rings ended with. By establishing the preeminence of the promises, Paul makes clear that the inheritance of God's blessings to Abraham comes through the promise, not through the law. And Paul takes that argument in just this direction. The second point. Inheritance comes by promise. Verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. I do not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, our lesson in hermeneutics continues this morning. Hermeneutics is just a word that means our lesson in how we read and understand Scripture, how we interpret it correctly. Paul is continuing that lesson for us. He's showing us the proper way to approach and interpret and make sense of Scripture. Now, I want to do a brief aside here. So hang with me for a moment. Sometimes in a sermon, application can be really clear. In light of this message, do this. Live differently in this way. Here's the thing. For much of Galatians up to this point, we've been seeing a defense made for the indicative realities that will ground the imperatives that come later. So it's just a way of saying, up to this point in Galatians, we've been hearing all sorts of things about what God has done for us. Later, we will hear all sorts of things that then Paul says we do in light of what God has done for us. So right now, we're in the indicative part. We're in the part where it's detailing everything God has done for us through Jesus Christ in establishing the gospel. Application in the section that is rich in indicatives is often going to center around right belief. Make sense? You apply an indicative section by believing and thinking correctly in light of the truths you're receiving. Application in the imperative section often involves right doing. Now I'm going to live differently. Go do this. Well, that makes the application really easy. Yeah, go do that. We need to see and realize those distinctions. Application that's geared towards believing correct things is much less tangible than application that's geared towards doing right things, isn't it? much less measurable. Now, I say all this to point out something that can get overlooked. 
both of these forms of application are biblical and both are necessary. But orthodoxy, right, believing in our application, always precedes and grounds orthopraxy, right, actions in light of it. Right belief grounds right action. So the struggle is that the indicative-driven application that we're seeing a lot in this part of the book derives from what God has done for us, and it's more elusive to our flesh. It's grounded in believing and thinking correctly and orienting our minds and our hearts in a way that reflects the truth of Scripture. Faith is just harder to make tangible than the works that flow from faith. But both are important, so... End of the aside. I just want you to be thinking about the application that's being made here. I say that because Galatians 3 can seem like one confusing chunk of Scripture. I was even reading one of the commentaries by Tom Schreiner, and Tom Schreiner's brilliant. And he comes to verse 20 in chapter 3 and says, nobody knows what this verse means. <laughs> so basically, just throws up hand and says, you know, I wouldn't spend much time preaching verse 20 because everyone's looking at that thinking, Huh? What, what in the world is that? Chapter 3 has got some tricky stuff involved. People read it, and they hear sermons from it. And when you're standing where I am, you just kind of start to see the glassy eyes. And the, the five-mile stare, just, huh? You know, that, that guy is definitely thinking of what he's having for lunch after this message gets over right now. That's what can happen to us in chapter 3. Paul is taking us into details complex arguments, and if we're not careful, we can get so obsessed with the trees and maybe even the moss that's growing on a certain side of the tree that we lose sight of the forest. We need to balance both the trees and the forest to understand Scripture correctly. And learning to read our Bibles biblically, to read our Bibles biblically, is of massive importance. So that's what Paul's doing here. He argues the promises are made to Abraham prior to the law, so they supersede the law in importance. And the promises to Abraham were made to his offspring. Remember, what does God promise to Abraham? First of all, old dude, you're going to have some offspring. Even though your wife is postmenopausal, she's going to bear a child. And that offspring is going to lead to millions of offspring, as, as incredibly numbered as the stars. And I'm going to give your offspring land, and I'm going to bless them, and they're going to be my people, and I'm going to be their God. These, these are the blessings that God lays out for Abraham. And all of a sudden, Paul comes along and says, actually, the reference is to a singular offspring, namely Christ. The whole point of the offspring isn't that they're going to be as many as the stars, is that there's only going to be one. How can you do that? Well, Technically, the word offspring is a collective singular. So offspring is a singular word. But we understand that it means lots. It's like family. Family is a singular word, but a family is more than one person, right? Well, Paul knows that. He's not flunking Greek 101 here. What he's doing is he's reading his Bible through the lens of redemptive history. He's reading his Bible redemptively. Now, if you're not sold yet, I just want to encourage you here. It's a good idea to read the Bible the same way Paul reads the Bible. Okay? The way we see Paul interacting with Old Testament texts, that's the way we want to interact with them. That's the way we want to read our Bibles. Because he had this helper called the Holy Spirit that inspired everything he was doing in this book. Now, 
the Bible is an interesting book. It's interesting in the sense that it's entirely appropriate and beneficial and sanctifying just to take the book, open it to the middle, drop in, and read, and expect that you're going to benefit from it. In fact, one day you can take the Bible and you can open to Psalms and be helped. The next day you can flip over to Matthew and be helped. Now that's a unique thing about the Bible. Normally, who would ever consider picking up a book and saying, you know, I'm going to flip over to chapter 10 and read from chapter 10 today. And the next day come back to the same book and say, no, I'm really feeling chapter 33 today and go to chapter 33. No, we pick up a book and we start from the beginning and we read to the end, right? So that you get the plot, so you understand what's happening. Hopefully you're not one of those people who ruins the whole tension of the plot by reading the last chapter first just to resolve all the tension. That's cheating. You're not getting out of the book what you're supposed to get. Don't do that. No spoilers. Well, the reason we can and should jump into the Bible in those sorts of ways, not necessarily every day starting at the beginning and trying to read all the way through it, is because it's filled with the inerrant truths of God. Here's the thing. When we drop into Psalms or Isaiah or John or Galatians, we need to read these located texts with an eye to the broader storyline. You read those places with your thoughts also thinking of the greater meta-narrative of Scripture. That's what Paul's doing. The biblical narrative points us to an individual offspring. Yeah, God said to Abraham, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars. But Paul reads the promises of Genesis in light of the Bible's whole storyline. He takes the tree that is the promise to Abraham and he steps back and he sees the forest. The plural, the plural offspring narrows to a son of David. It narrows to an individual king. It narrows to one suffering servant. All of which Paul, reading the Bible, theologically recognizes to be Jesus of Nazareth. So the plural offspring of the promise find their fulfillment in the corporate representation of the one true offspring, Jesus. Paul's point is there's really only ever been one true offspring of Abraham. Yeah, there's tons of Jews, but only one of them has really truly been a Jew. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's reading the entire narrative of the Old Testament. He's reading it correctly. Jesus is the one offspring of the original redemptive promise in Genesis 3.15. Remember? God says to Eve, one from you will begin to undo this curse. You will have an offspring. Someone will come from your flesh, woman, who will crush the serpent. Paul reads the Old Testament typologically. That's a fancy word that means he sees this promise of offspring and all the other promises to terminate and find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Promise after promise after promise in book after book after book of Scripture anticipates and foreshadows Jesus. And that's the way you need to read your Bibles. Look at those trees. Get up close to those trees. Understand the bark of those trees. But step back and look at the forest. 
reorient yourself, and then look at those trees again. Sometimes people sit there with their Bible and circling words and highlighting phrases and doing all this work, and, and man, they are experts on that tree, but they've lost sight of the bigger story. You need to keep the bigger story in your crosshairs. That's what's going on here. Paul's point is that with the arrival of the offspring, Jesus, the age of fulfillment has now arrived. You've got to recognize there's only one true Israel, Jesus. So you want to belong to Israel, you have to belong to Jesus. If you don't belong to Jesus, you have nothing to do with Abraham. Our reading, our applying, our preaching and interpreting of Scripture must draw upon redemptive historical precepts and concepts. Redemptive historical, considering the big story of redemption as the Bible tells it. You read the parts, Genesis, Leviticus, Psalms, Jeremiah, Galatians, Revelation, in view of the whole story. So, you can't read the scriptures in disconnected and disjointed ways. Because if you do, you'll get confused. And you'll make mistakes like they're making in Galatia. Now, it's not just Paul who reads his Bible this way, is it? So does Jesus. Matthew 5, 17. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is laying out, this is what my kingdom is going to be like. This is what the kingdom of God is going to be marked by. Here's a little piece for you right at the beginning of my Sermon on the Mount. You know what my kingdom is going to be like? Well, this is how we're going to read Scripture in my kingdom. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophet. There's just a, a phrase that says, don't think I've come to abolish the whole Old Testament. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, pass from the law until it all is accomplished. Jesus reads the whole Old Testament through the lens of himself. His conclusions are the same as Paul's. The inheritance comes through the promise, not the law. Specifically, he's ensuring that all those who unite to Christ in faith are united with Christ in his eternal inheritance as the one true offspring of Abraham. Now, all of this begs a really important question. What's the purpose of the law? Why on earth give this thing to Moses? And Paul asks that question. In verse 19, he anticipates it. Why then the law? In verse 21, he says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Now, he said some pretty mean things about justification according to the law so far in chapter 3, right? He's just been pummeling this sucker relentlessly. You do that, you're cursed. There's no life for you there. When he asks, is the law opposed to the promises, Paul's really asking this. Is the law opposed to grace? Is the law given to Moses, is that opposed to the grace of God? Are they, are they against each other? Are they at odds with each other? Well, let's look and see what he says. Promises and law are two totally different ways of offering something. Grace or the promise offers something you don't deserve, right? 
to give you something you haven't earned. The law offers inheritance only when you do earn it. But do these differences mean that the law is opposed to the promise? How does Paul answer that? By no means, he explains. May it never be. Certainly not. It's this, it's this loaded phrase in the Greek that's like, are you crazy to even ask that question? It's not even in the realm of possibility. Certainly not. Certainly the law is not opposed to the promise. The law operates differently than the promise, but it isn't opposed to grace. What the law does is prime the pump for grace. In the law, in its subservience to grace, it serves two important functions that Paul shows us here. It does two things that are totally different from the way that grace operates. But these two totally different things that the law does, they're totally different from how grace works. They're also necessary precursors to the promise. That's where we're going to end today. We're going to look at those two ways that the law operates in discontinuity from the promise, but in preparation for the promise. Make sense? First, the law imprisons. But the scripture, you notice how he just switched there? The scripture imposed everything under sin. Up to this point, he said, law, 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 law. And now all of a sudden, he's going to show you, law's not all bad. And I'm going to tip you off by calling it the scripture. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The scripture imprisons us for a very specific reason. Because of sin. The entire reason the law is given, Paul says, is because of transgressions. Right? can kind of seem like a funny way of thinking. Here's what's even stranger. Paul says God didn't give the law because there was sin and he wanted to restrain sin and help you not to sin. Exact opposite. God gave the law to stir up sin. God gives the law to increase sin. Now that seems like a totally strange way of thinking, doesn't it? God ordains the giving of the law so that it will reveal the horrible extent of human sin. And not just broadly, not just corporately, but individually. That with failure after failure after failure to keep the law, there's only one conclusion. I'm a stinky person. I ain't good. That's what the law is meant to do. Luther says this. Luther loves, loves sticking it to the law. The law is like a mighty hammer that breaks open the rocks of our heart and exposes the sin that's in us. That's what the law does. So the purpose of the law's imprisonment is that it reveals our impotence. The law imprisons us to show us you got no way of breaking out of this prison. You are stuck in Alcatraz, buddy, and you can't swim. That's the situation for you in the law. That's what the law is meant to do. It imprisons us in sin and forces us to a position of utter need. 
The law reveals our sin and it stirs up our sin with such damning consistency that we are left with no option but to turn to the promise. Which is really to turn to the offspring who inherited and completed the promise. Jesus. The imprisonment happens to shut us up under the power of sin. That's what the law does. It takes you, it imprisons you, and it forces you underneath the condemnation of your own sin. Because you can't do the right things you need to do to get out of it. It puts you under the power of sin. It breaks us. It even stirs up more sin. Consistently. Constantly. Endlessly. Relentlessly. Forcing us to recognize I have no hope in the law. I have only hope in Christ. Now, think of it this way. The law functions like chemotherapy. Chemo is brutal. It's terrible. It, it doesn't give life to cancer patients. Not directly anyway. It's a terror designed by doctors to kill the cells in its path. We're, we're bringing the chemo now, and this chemo is going to wreak havoc on your cells. And it's going to wreak havoc on the cancer cells and on the living cells. It's going to terrorize this body. Chemo is a treatment of death that purges the body and in the process weakens and assaults the patient. You don't walk away from chemo feeling better than when you started the end of chemo, a patient is beaten down and physically weak. At the end of the law, the flesh is crushed and weakened to the point that no hope can be placed in it. At the mercy of the good physician. No life is produced in the law. Chemo doesn't produce life. Chemo brings death, hoping that as it kills the healthy cells, it's also killing all the cancer. The law does the same thing. It highlights sin. It promotes sin. It creates evidence of impending death. And it does all this in service of the promise. So that at the end of the law's chemotherapy, at the end of the treatment, you're beaten. But you're also ready for the balm of Christ drives you to your only prospect for redemption. Romans 5.20 Now the law came in to increase the trespass. What on earth? Why? Because where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Every turn, as I'm bombarded by the chemotherapy of the law, I see the impending nature when my nature goes all the way, as it keeps running up against the law, death is imminent. It just keeps getting worse. It just keeps looking worse. More sin just keeps rising up. And at the end of it, I just realize a thousand times more than I was at the beginning, I need the good physician. I need grace. Here's the thing. The law is intrinsically different 
to the promise. But they are complementary. Think of it this way. The gospel is not a paint job. It's not something that throws a thin veneer over the cracks in our respectable lives. What the gospel is, Paul shows us, is a backhoe. And it takes the law and it digs up and it exposes the dirt of our rottenness. What does Jesus accuse the Pharisees of being? You whitewash tombs. You, you throw some paint on the outside, thinking it's going to cover up the fact that there's death beneath the surface. Justification by works of the law is nothing but a poor paint job. It create, creates this, this veneer over our lives. It lets us convince ourselves that everything's really great. See, look, doesn't the paint job look nice? We say to folks, I'm doing right. It gives us a tangible fleshy assurance. Did what I was supposed to this morning. Jesus loves me. That's what works does. That's what the whitewashed tomb does. I'm good because my veneer is so pretty. Look at how the colors complement each other. I'm a two-tone veneer. The gospel uses the law to rip away the facade and expose the mold. It shows us that 50 coats of paint won't change the rotted wood and the termites that fester in our hearts. It's a backhoe that rips in and digs up and exposes decay. But in the process of exposing our unrighteousness and our inability to heal the disease of sin, grace is also solving the problem. There's no life to be found in the law, Paul says. The law can't bring life. It can't produce obedience, is what he means. It just stirs up more sin. You face that, right? Say no to temptation, say no to temptation, and then you give in. Obedience doesn't come with the law. Instead, it bludgeons us to the point that we recognize there's only life to be found in faith in Christ. Here's the thing. Both the carrot and the stick can train the horse. They're different. The stick, the law, just beats the horse. But the carrot, promise, grace, it nourishes. It gives life. It's the first thing the law shows us. It's the first way that the law, though different, complements grace. The second thing is this. It doesn't just imprison us. The law acts as a guardian. Here's what Paul says. So then, as an extension, even a little extra explanation of this imprisonment, he says, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The idea of a guardian or custodian is this common thing in the Roman world that's essentially meaningless to you. If you think you know what guardian means in this text, I'm basically going to assume, unless you've researched this text, you're wrong. We don't get what Paul's using here with this word. The word is loaded with context that deals with the Greco-Roman world. There's individuals there that are called pedagogues. So, pedagogical, pertaining to teaching. That can mislead you. A pedagogue wasn't primarily an educator. A more appropriate way of considering a pedagogue is that they were essentially a babysitter. 
Paul says the law is like a pedagogue. It's like a babysitter. It's a custodian. They weren't teachers. They were disciplinarians in the Greco-Roman world. This is what they would do. They would train a child. You're really rich, rich Roman. I don't want to deal with my own kids. I'm going to hire a pedagogue. And this pedagogue teaches my child. This is, this is the manner. This is how you sit at the table. This is how you use your silverware. This is the way that you interact with adults. This is how you work in life and in society. I'm going to teach you the manners. I'm going to teach you the rules. And then I'm going to punish you whenever you disobey them. That's what a pedagogue did. The law tells us what to do, and then it punishes us every time we fail. Paul's point is saying, when you grow up, you don't need a babysitter anymore. At least hopefully you don't. No, you don't need a babysitter once you reach adulthood. When Christ came, the old era of babysitters and disciplinarians comes to an end. The law safeguards us until Christ. Like any good pedagogue, the law works itself out of a job. The law is given to imprison us until the seed comes for whom the law was intended. And it safeguards us until we reach the maturity of faith. Only the true offspring, Christ, could find final approval and righteousness through the law. There's only one seed that ever walked under the pedagogue of the law and never got punished. Not deservingly so, anyway. This also means that the law was given only until the Messiah comes. There's never a covenant that God intended to last forever. It's not like the covenant with Abraham. At the arrival of Jesus, it comes to an end. Paul is emphatically underscoring, we aren't under the law anymore with the arrival of Christ. The guardianship is over. So why on earth, Galatians, why on earth, Providence, are you going back there? Do you want a spanking again? Of course not. Be an adult. Live like you're an adult because you are an adult. The Messiah has arrived. The law's purpose is to establish the standard according to God's holiness and then crush us when we fail to achieve it. The law is good and it's wise. But because of sin, it's powerless. It's unjustifying and it's deadly. The law bruises, strikes, and wounds us. It arrests us in sin, and it imprisons us. Its crushing purpose is to bring us to the maturity of faith. Without the law, we would see no need for Christ. The gospel, on the other hand, fulfills the promises in Christ and conveys grace conveys forgiveness and redemption, righteousness and life. Where the law enslaves and imprisons, the gospel liberates and brings freedom. Where the law condemns, the gospel acquits. Where the law crushes, the gospel heals. Where the law brings punishment for lack of obedience, the gospel empowers obedience through faith. The law leaves us guilty before the judge, fully deserving of hell and eternal punishment. The gospel.
places the judge with a father. It unites us to Christ by faith and assures us that there is an eternal inheritance you have with Jesus. Peter says that it is kept for you, unblemished, that you are co-heirs of the promise in your union with Christ as surely as Christ was the Son of God, took on flesh, lived perfectly in obedience, was crucified, was raised on the third day, and now reigns at the right hand of God. As sure as all of those things are true for Jesus, in the gospel, through faith, with the same amount of assurance, you are united with Him. That's what the law meant to do. To drive us to Jesus. Very different than the promise. But not opposed to the promise. I'll leave you with this little poem, this little verse by John Bunyan. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings.